Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. Once again, Daniel chapter 2. We're going to pick up our study of the book of Daniel where we left off a couple of weeks ago. If you're brand new to Abundant Life, we're studying verse by verse, line by line, an amazing book in the Old Testament called the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 this morning. You know, I remember being 16 years of age, sophomore in high school, and I was on the varsity football team. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Finally, I've arrived, made me somebody playing varsity, only a sophomore, and I realized I loved the Friday night lights, and I loved hearing my name in the loudspeaker as it would go out across, you know, the high school stadium of dozens of people. (laughs) I loved waking up the next day, getting the newspaper, looking in the sports section, seeing my name in the newspaper. For those that are under the age of 30, a newspaper was... It's when they used to put the news on paper. Yeah, it's weird, I know. You know, there's something within us all that loves the applause of men. We love the recognition, reputation. We love being king over our little kingdoms. And do you understand, the ultimate selfie society has made self-idolatry. And I want you to see today what we're about to learn. There's only one king that will last forever, only one king that will live forever, only one kingdom that will last eternally, not temporarily. It's not Phil's kingdom or your kingdom. It is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question I want to ask today is, who is king over your life? See, every single one of us will live under a king, either a counterfeit king that goes by your name, or in my case, my name, or the true and living king, the resurrected king, the Lord Jesus. And Daniel chapter two is a reminder once again of the theme of the book of Daniel. What we're learning in Daniel chapter two is of God's sovereignty, meaning he is sovereign over the nations. He is sovereign over time. He has no real opposition, that he really is king of heaven and king over all that is. And only the kingdom of our Lord Jesus is going to last forever. That's what we're about to learn in Daniel chapter 2 that I've entitled of kings and kingdoms. Now, I want to remind you something as we got going in our study of the book of Daniel. There is way too much to do just on a Sunday morning. This is a large book, and if we're going to study it, we're going to do it right. We're not going to rush through it. We're going to go line by line, verse by verse. We're going to turn over every rock and look underneath it, which means there's a lot of teaching that I'm not going to do on Sunday. If you want to go farther and go a little deeper, uh, you can begin to look at some of these extra lessons that I've shot in a studio. There's actually two additional teaching sermons that I've done in a studio that will be posted tomorrow, and you can go right here to this QR code. It'll take you to our sermon page. And it's going to fill in a lot of blanks that we don't have time for on a Sunday. Today, we're going to just do a flyover of Daniel chapter 2. And I want to tell you ahead of time what we're about to learn in Daniel chapter 2. This amazing chapter of the book of Daniel. First, we're going to see Daniel correctly prophesy four world kingdoms in their successive order that have already risen and already fallen. Remember, kingdoms come and go. Nations rise and fall. But only the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will last forever. 
If you're not familiar with who Daniel is and why is this book that we're studying named Daniel, Daniel was a Hebrew teenager that was taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar during the besiege of Jerusalem in 605 BC. The Babylonian Empire has just risen to power. They are like the superpowers, the monarchs of the ancient known world in the 6th century BC. So Daniel is now in Babylon. He spends his entire life in Babylon, 70 years, where he writes the book of Daniel as a Hebrew prophet that we now study. What we're going to see is Daniel interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he prophesies correctly centuries before it would happen for Gentile world powers, non-Jewish world powers, world kingdoms that would rise and fall. Now, that may not sound that impressive from our vantage point of time where we're looking back through history, but when Daniel did it, he did it as a prophecy, not reporting history. I mean, he did the centuries ahead of time. Now, we're also going to see Daniel prophesy two world kingdoms that are still yet future. Even from our vantage point of the 21st century, these two kingdoms have not yet emerged, but they will emerge in the last day, specifically the time of tribulation. Daniel prophesies in Daniel 9, verse 27, there's going to be seven years on the earth shortly before Jesus returns. And right before Jesus returns, there's something called a tribulation. It's seven years specifically. And one of these kingdoms emerge during the seven-year tribulation, that one that is still yet to come. But at the end of that seven years, there's another kingdom that will come and crush all other kingdoms to oblivion, and it will finally then be the fulfillment of the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as the kingdom of heaven becomes one and the same with the kingdoms of this world. Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, some of us aren't sure if we should clap for that. Like, I remember being 20 once, right? Long before there was a Pastor Phil, there's just this kid named Phil, 20-something, and, you know, I'd sit in church, and i hear the preacher talk about the second coming of Christ and Jesus coming again, and I would be like at 20 years of age, like, I don't know if that's a great idea. I don't really want that to happen. Seriously, because like, I want to live my life. Jesus comes someday, just not now. So if you're a 20-something today, maybe a teenager, and you're going, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can get that excited about Jesus returning. Just wait. All right, you need about 30 years. That's all you need. Because the older I get, the more I realize there's less and less this world really has to offer. Now, you don't know it yet, just hang on. I'm just saying, there's less and less that I, this world has really to offer to hang on to. Like, I'm ready to see Jesus, yes? And I think we ought to squeeze everything there is out of life. I mean, there's a lot of joy in life in the middle of the sadness and suffering of life. Let's live it for all we got, but let's be honest. Aren't you glad this isn't all that is and it's not all that matters? Jesus Christ is coming again. And that is what we see in Daniel chapter 2. Man, I could preach a message right there and just, I, I can't. I got to move on. All right, we're moving on. We're mo say, everybody say, move on, Phil. Move on. All right, I got the message. Here we go. Daniel 2 and verse 1. If you're ready for this, say, come Jesus. Here we go. All right, now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Now, we know it's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which makes it the first year that Daniel is in Babylon. He's just gotten there. 
Remember what we saw in Daniel chapter 1? He is like a a wise man in training. He's one of the magi in training. He's got a three-year scholarship to the University of Babylon where he is learning how to become a magi, one of the wise men, the advisors in the king's inner cabinet. These were men that practiced astrology. They looked for answers in the stars. Uh, They practiced occult magic. They were fortune tellers, so to speak. And so he's in that, that, that academy where he's learning how to do this. He's only just gotten there. It's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, his reign. So the Babylonians have just come to power. They are like the unopposed superpower at this time in history. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he just cannot go back to sleep. Like, this dream is a nightmare. He knows it has to mean something. He doesn't know what it means. He knows this dream had to be from the gods. He didn't just believe in God. He didn't believe in Daniel's God, your God, my God. He believes in pagan gods. He doesn't know what this means. He just knows it has to mean something. Now listen carefully before we go any farther. You need to know that God does still and can still speak to you in a dream, but that is not normative. That's not the normal way God shares his will now because we have God's word. If you want to know the will of God, search no farther than the Word of God. Now, I'm telling you that because even today I hear, you know, well-meaning people go, well, I, I need God to speak to me. And, man, I'm praying God gives me a dream. He, he can do that. But you need to recognize something. Everything you now see must be filtered through what God has said. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us that before you had the revelation of the Son of God, which is the Word of God, God did at various times in various ways speak to men and women. At this time in history, God spoke often to dreams because they did not have the complete written revelation of Scripture. And so it's not that God can't speak to you in a dream, just be weary, be careful, because everything you see or experience must be filtered now through God's Word. Because understand, God can give you a dream, but Satan can too. So if you have a dream, you think, well, this is the will of God. He's trying to tell me something. It it might be God, but honestly, it might not be. It could just be the bad Chinese you ate the night before, you know? (laughs) And that's why I'm trying to bring you back to the Word of God. Everything must be filtered through God's Word. Guys, we live at a time where well-meaning Christians who love Jesus run all over the world, hither and thither, looking for the next great awakening, the next great revival, and, you know, signs and wonders. And they think the litmus test of the move of God's Spirit has to be in a miracle, signs and wonders. And I want you to understand something. God is still a God of wonders, but if you need to see a sign as in a miracle to authenticate the move of God, be careful, Satan can do miracles too. As a matter of fact, we're told in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9 that the day is coming in the tribulation when this one known as the Antichrist emerges as a political leader, a world leader. It says he will be empowered, probably possessed by Satan, and he will deceive the masses through lying signs and wonders. In other words, he'll be able to do miracles that lie. See, if you need to see a miracle... To put your faith in God or the move of God, be careful, Satan does miracles too. I'm trying to bring you back to the word of God. If you want to know the will of God, look no farther than the word of God. Everything must be filtered through God's word. I, I just wish I could hear the audible voice of God. Then open up any page in your Bible and read out loud. And you will hear the audible voice of God. The voice of God is found in the word of God. 
Now, this time in history, God often spoke through a dream. They did not have the written word of God like we have today. Nebuchadnezzar knows this dream means something I don't know what. I cannot go back to sleep. I cannot rest till I know. So let me just summarize what happens about the next 25 verses. We don't have time to read it. We do in these other two lessons, all right? We go through every verse, line by line. But basically what happens in the next 25 verses is Nebuchadnezzar pulls together all of his wise men, probably dozens and dozens, and uh, his wise men, his advisors, his, the magi, okay? And he tells them, guys, look, I've had a dream. I know it means something. I think it's from the gods. I don't know what it means. I want you to tell me the interpretation of my dream. But before you give me the interpretation of my dream, I want you to tell me exactly what I dreamed. Yeah, that's probably how they responded at first. Like nervous laughter. Are you serious? Is he serious? Is he serious? Nobody can do that. Now, apparently, King Nebuchadnezzar had dialed 1-900 dial a psychic one too many times. Like, he's on to these guys, fakes and, you know, frauds, right? He, he apparently has gone through his phone, strolling through TikTok, you know, seeing all the tarot card readers, and once again, they're wrong, 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 wrong. Like, he, he's done with these frauds. And uh, he, he, he's testing them now because he knows if he tells them his dream, instead of making them tell him his dream, they can pull anything out of their left ear and say, well, here's the interpretation, King. So now he's saying, oh, no, we're not going to do it like we used to. If you know half as much as you claim to and you really are getting your information from the gods, you ought to be able to tell me what I dreamed. I shouldn't have to tell you. And if you look at the whole text, they're like, King, nobody's ever asked any about it to do that. I mean, no king has ever asked a magi to do that. This is a crazy request. You can't do that. We can't do that. Only the gods can do that. Well, finally, these guys get something right. That's right. Only God could actually do that. So he gets so furious, he is so angry, he actually orders the execution of all of his wise men in Babylon. Probably dozens and dozens of them are now going to be executed. In fact, if you read the text, what he says is, I'm going to cut you in pieces and make your house an ash heap. All right, so Arioch, who is like uh, the head honcho of the palace guard, he comes, he knocks on Daniel's door. He says, Daniel, I have bad news for you. I know you're just like a magi in training, like on the JV team, but I, I've come because i got to kill you too. I mean, you guys all got to come, and we're going to have a big execution today, and the king's decreed that all the magi and all the wise men are going to have to die. I'm going to have to cut you in pieces. I'm sorry, really, Not, nothing personal. And so Daniel responds like, well, hang on a minute, killer. You know, slow down a little, all right? Just give me some time to consult with my God. Let my God have a shot at this. Yeah, the Magi's gods, they don't know everything. But my God knows everything. So, so let me have a little prayer meeting. He comes together with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And sure enough, they have themselves an all-night prayer meeting where God reveals to them not just the interpretation of the dream, but also the very dream itself. So we pick the story up now in verse 25. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah. Apparently, Arioch wanted to be the hero of the story. King, I have found your guy. I'm your guy, and I have found the guy, right? So uh, I'd like a promotion and a pay raise because I have found the man among the captives of Judah, 
who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Verse 31, Daniel gives him now the dream before giving the interpretation. If you read the verses in the middle, basically Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, no, I can't give you the dream. I can't give you the interpretation. Nobody can do that. Only God can do that. But it just so happens the God that I serve is a God who is a revealer of secrets, and he has revealed to me your dream and its interpretation. You, O king, here's, here's the dream. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image And this great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone struck the image, became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. You can only imagine Nebuchadnezzar going, ha, ha, he did it. Somebody did it. He told me my dream. This is amazing. It's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. And you have Daniel who was able to tell him the very dream with precision and a specific description of exactly what Nebuchadnezzar saw. In some way, this is what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. He sees an image of a man. He sees an image of a king. And this image has a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass or bronze, and then you have the legs of iron, and then you have the feet, which are ten toes, mixed uh, iron and clay together. Now, right about now, we'd be going, what in the world does any of this mean? But we don't have to wonder. You know why? Because anywhere in the Bible God uses symbolism, he always gives you also the interpretation. He doesn't leave it up to you to think up your own arbitrary opinion about what any of this means. So what's going to happen next is Daniel is actually going to give the interpretation. It's going to be right on the same page. Here it is right now, Daniel 2 and verse 36. This is the dream. Now we will give the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over all of them. You are this head of gold. Man, the Bible's hard to understand, isn't it? See, anytime God uses symbolism, he doesn't leave it up to an arbitrary opinion to decide what any of it means. He always gives you the interpretation. Now, it's not always on the same page, but as you learn to compare Scripture with Scripture, you discover the Bible is self-defining. It is self-interpreting. You now have God's interpretation of this dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you saw this image of a man, and check this out. You're the king of kings. You're the high king of the earth. You are the head of gold. You see, what you have here, is the Babylonian empire symbolized by the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar being the head of the Babylonian empire. Right about now, you know Nebuchadnezzar's going, well, of course I'm the head of gold. I mean, <laughs> I'm awesome. 
You know, it's better being gold than silver. And everybody knows I'm awesome. So, you know, right about now, he's thinking, I love this dream. Tell me more. And if you read the whole text, that's what Daniel does. He tells him more, but it's not good news. It's bad news. What he says is, king, right now, you're the head of gold. But there's another kingdom coming after yours that's going to conquer yours. And after them, there's another kingdom coming after them that's going to conquer them. And after that kingdom, there's another kingdom going to conquer them. And he tells him specifically that there's kingdoms that are going to rise and fall after him. That there indeed is another kingdom coming symbolized by the chest and arms of silver we know from history is the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, I've said many times as we study prophecy together, and Daniel is a book of prophecy that the best way to understand prophecy and interpret prophecy is once it's happened. Amen? The good news is this part of the prophecy has already happened. Not hard to figure out at all what's going on now. You have the Babylonians at the head of gold. Now you have the chest and arms of silver that was indeed the Medo-Persian Empire that would conquer the Babylonian Empire. And in 539 B.C., that's exactly what would happen. And it makes sense. They were a two-armed empire. You had the Medes and you had the Persians who came together to form a coalition for the destruction of the Babylonian kingdom. Now, check this out. They've become known simply as the Persian Empire in the early days, the Medo-Persian Empire. But history mainly remembers them now as the Persian Empire. Check it out. They would last for 200 years. But exactly as Daniel prophesied, another kingdom would come after them. You see, kingdoms rise and fall. Nations come and go. And I will promise about 90 years into the Persian Empire, nobody could have fathomed a world where the Persians were not in power. About 20 years into Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, nobody could have imagined the world without the Babylonians in power. But what we're learning is that the kingdoms of this world come and go. Only the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is going to last forever. And sure enough, the Persians would be conquered by a man in history known as Alexander the Great, and the Grecian Empire would conquer the Persian Empire. Check this out. When we get to Daniel chapter 8, Daniel is going to prophesy specifically about the coming of Alexander the Great, the first Grecian conqueror and the first Grecian king, and he's going to do it 200 years before Alexander will even be born. Don't tell me you can't trust the Bible. It is a supernatural book. The Bible alone can boast fulfilled prophecy that we can look back through the lens of history and we can prove it happened exactly as prophesied and it happened literally. Now, if you know anything about history, and it's important you do because you can't understand prophecy if you don't know anything about history. See, Daniel 2 makes no sense to a lot of people because they've never heard of the Babylonian Empire, never heard of the Persian Empire. Might have heard of Alexander the Great. They made a movie about him, but don't really know what he did, you know, right? So I'm just trying to tell you, you can't understand the future if you don't know anything about the past. And that's why as we study prophecy, we have to know something about history. Because if you know anything about history, you know the next empire to come, represented by the legs of iron, is the Roman Empire, the empire that was in power at the time of Christ. Iron has always been associated with Rome. Maybe you've heard of Rome's iron legions. 
So you have the legs of iron represented by the Roman Empire. It makes sense they're legs of iron because it was the Romans that would build for the first time enormous highways and a highway system that would link the entire known world. They built it for commerce, but it was on that same highway system for the first time there could be world travel, not just by sea, but over land. And it was those very same highways the Romans built for commerce that the early Christians would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, as you study this prophecy, there's kind of two schools that kind of are in opposition. As you look at prophecy scholars and theologians, historically, what prophecy scholars tell us about this next kingdom that has not yet come, the one represented by the ten toes and the feet mixed with clay and uh, iron, they, they tell us uh, historically, American theologians say, well, that's a confederation of ten nations of Western European nations, all right? That's historically the view. Now, there's a new view out there. If you study any of this at all, you'll, you'll run across guys like uh, Walid Shubat is his name. He is an Arab Christian, formerly Muslim, that's now become a prophecy scholar. And, and he argues for the 10 nations represented by the 10 toes being a Muslim caliphate. I want you to notice how we all have a tendency to interpret scripture through our own cultural time and place. American European theologians say, oh, they're European nations. Uh, you, you have Mo formerly Muslim Arab Christians say, oh, that's a Muslim caliphate. That's the rebirth of, of the Ottoman Empire. But I would suggest maybe, just maybe, both are partly right, both are partly wrong, because indeed what you have here in this future empire that is to come is a ten-nation confederation uh, represented by the ten toes on this image, feet with ten toes of iron and clay. You have a revived or reborn Roman Empire. But if you know anything about the Roman Empire, Empire. It was the first empire in history that spanned east and west. Left leg, right leg. Five toes on the left, five toes on the right. I don't know this for sure, purely speculation, but I think maybe this future coalition of nations that will form the power base of the Antichrist will be five European nations and five Arab nations because that represents ge geographically the old Roman Empire. What I do know is that these 10 toes correspond to 10 horns on the fourth beast. Daniel 7, verse 24, Daniel sees a beast representing this empire of Rome that had 10 horns. Revelation chapter 17 is another cross-reference. Those 10 horns represent 10 kings or 10 nations that correspond to these 10 toes. There is a coming kingdom of 10 nations that is still yet future. Now listen carefully. All these kingdoms have one thing in common. Besides the fact, other than the 10-toed kingdom of 10 nations that's yet future, all these other kingdoms have what? Come and gone. They've risen, they have fallen. And besides that, what do they have in common? They are all in rebellion and opposition to the kingdom of heaven. Never lose sight as we study this book of Daniel. He's writing from Babylon. He's writing from this ancient city that was originally known as Babel. It was built by a man known as Nimrod in Genesis chapter 11. Nimrod's name means Lord of Rebellion. Nimrod said, let us build a city and a tower that will reach into heaven because he had his strings being pulled by another Lord of Rebellion and those strings were being pulled behind the scenes. The same one who in Isaiah 14 and verse 12 said, 
said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Never forget that Satan wants to be worshiped as God. He wants to establish his kingdom instead of God. He wants to sit on the throne of God. And that same Lord of rebellion who said, I will ascend into heaven, pulled the strings of this other Lord of rebellion by the name of Nimrod, who said, let us build a city and a tower that will reach into heaven. You see, the kingdoms of this world are in direct opposition and rebellion to the kingdom of heaven because Satan wants what belongs to God, an earthly kingdom. And you can look back through the lens of history, you can see it happen over and over again with would-be world conquerors by the name of Stalin or Mao Zedong or Hitler would be another example. You can see it today in another dictator by the name of Vladimir Putin. I want you to see life not just with your physical eyes, but rather your spiritual eyes. See what's going on behind the scenes. Because at this very moment, the props and the players are being positioned on the world platform for the showdown of the ages. I'm talking about the climax of the ages, the return of the king, the rightful king, who one day will come and redeem all of creation. He's coming. And at this very moment, Satan is trying to establish his kingdom, the props and the players on the world platform, to advance his kingdom in opposition and rebellion to God's kingdom. It's not coincidental at all. All eyes right now are focused on the Ukraine. Did you know in Genesis chapter 38, we are told of a future war where the prince of Rosh, that sounds familiar, has a title of Gog. Gog is a title. It's called the Battle of Gog and Magog. And did you know that Magog, anthropologists tell us, is the region of the world around the Black Sea. Southern Russia, Belarus, the Ukraine. Don't know this for sure, but Vladimir Putin certainly fits the description of the biblical Gog who will one day lead this region, Magog, in a coalition of Arab nations against Israel to destroy Israel. I'm just telling you today, there's more going on than meets the eye. There always is. What you have is a battle of kings and kingdoms. As God knows one day, he's going to send back the true and rightful king, and he's going to look at the counterfeit king. And Jesus is coming back with title deed in hand, according to Revelation chapter 7, a seven-sealed scroll. And with title deed in hand, he's going to look at a counterfeit king, and he's going to say, get off my land. And it will be thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth finally as it is in heaven, as the kingdom of heaven becomes one and the same with the kingdoms of this world. And you say, Phil, what does this have to do with my life? Because, like, you know, I'm not a Stalin. Like, I'm not a world dictator. Like, you know, I'm not a, a Hitler, and I'm certainly not a Vladimir Putin. I'm just trying to mind my own business and get through life. Listen carefully. What this has to do with your life is the same thing it has to do with my life. And the heart of us all is the desire to be king over our own kingdom or queen over our own queendom. Because the same Lord of rebellion that worked within Nimrod 
and Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler and now Vladimir Putin, that same Lord of Rebellion that's pulling their strings, wants to pull your strings and my strings behind the scenes. And today is the day to define who will be king over your kingdom, either a counterfeit king that has your name, or in my case, my name, or the true and rightful king, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us desire to be king or queen over our own earthly kingdoms to establish our own little empires made of dust that will one day rust, which is why when Jesus came, he gave us an invitation to become members of his kingdom, but to become a member of his kingdom, you've got to subjugate your kingdom. He put it this way, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In the context of all these things, all the earthly things, all the worldly things that we try to use to build our little kingdoms, he said, listen, if you will no longer live for the earthly and begin to live for eternity, if you will seek my kingdom and submit your kingdom, one day all these things will be added unto you. See, today's the day to make the great exchange. There's not one among us that doesn't have a natural bent toward wanting to be my own king, be my own boss, be my own God, little G. There's not one among us that doesn't love the Friday night lights and everybody look at me and self-idolatry and everybody worship me and everybody applaud for me. I don't know for sure what the image would look like in our day, what it looked like in Nebuchadnezzar's day, but in some way, every single one of us in this selfie society want in some way to build our own little kingdom where it's all about me. We build an image to us. What did Nebuchadnezzar see? An image of a man. It is man's deification, and we naturally want to deify us, make it all about us. I don't know for sure what Daniel would see if he saw a dream in the 21st century, but I think it would look something like this. It begins with a base. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there were at least four or five stages, and I think this one would have one too. It would begin with a base on this image to us, this idol to us, Beginning with the letter F, I'm talking about the idolatry of finances and fortune and fame and fun and freedom. The idolatry of money, it's everywhere in our society. Now listen, money is not evil, money is not sinful. Having lots and lots of money is not evil, it is not sinful. One of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible is 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. Well, you know what the Bible says. Money's the root of all evil. No, that's not what the Bible says. What does it say, class? Man, you guys, you guys are the real deal Sunday school class, I can tell. Yeah, money's not evil, it's the love of money that's evil. See, when money becomes your God, when you begin to serve it instead of it serving you, when you begin to in some way worship it and build your life around it instead of worshiping and building your life around Jesus, now you have succumbed to the idolatry of money when the reality is one day everything you hold in your hands you will one day lose. 
See, if you choose to build your own little kingdom based on your stuff, there's coming a day that you will lose it all. Jesus was promising if you choose to live for your kingdom instead of his kingdom, everything you have will decay, it will rust, it will fade away, which is why Jesus said, don't lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up treasure in heaven where neither moth and rust corrupts, where thieves do not break through and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's nothing evil about money. The question is, where's your treasure? Where's your heart? Is it in heaven or on the earth? See, if you're not investing your life, your energy, your money, your opportunities, your abilities in the things that last forever, you will have lived a life for things that in the end will not matter. And that's why it begins with the idolatry of finances and fortune and fame. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar loved his fame. He loved people worshiping his name. And there's something within us all that loves our fame, that people would applause for our name. I mean, in a social media-driven selfie society, I mean, how many likes did I get? I mean, how many followers are on Instagram? Somebody affirm me, applaud me, tell me I matter. And you can see it happening now more than ever. And this is why it says in 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, there it is, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And it says the world is passing away, and everything in it. You see, there's nothing you have in your earthly kingdom that will last It's not going to matter because it's not forever fun. I mean, the idolatry of fun. That's what some of us live for. Another vacation, another happy hour, another weekend, freedom. Hey, as Americans, we put a high price and priority on our freedom and our liberty. But for some of us, it's idolatry. And I want you to see that we one block after another build an image to us. I'm talking about an idol to me where everybody should look at me. Everybody worship me. Uh, There was more than one image related to this image of Nebuchadnezzar's. You had the head of gold. You had the belly and the arms of silver, the chest of brass, legs of iron, I think the next one might be L. Every single one of us in some way naturally want to be king or queen over our kingdom. The L stands for this, lust, libido, luxury, love. You see, our society has made gods of all these, idols of all these, the idolatry of lust, libido. We live in a society that has erroneously taught you that your true identity is in your sexuality. No, that is a lie state from the pit of hell. It is a lie from the enemy. Your identity is not in your sexuality. Our identity is that we have been born again as Christians, as a child of God, to bear the image of God. But instead of walking in the image of God, we're like Nebuchadnezzar. We dream about an image of us. This age of promiscuity, sensuality, we're like the Babylonians who worshiped Ishtar, the goddess of fertility, promiscuity, luxury. We live in a society of excess. The idolatry of 
of luxury. How about love? Listen, none of these things are sinful. God calls all these things good. But do you understand, Satan wants to use what God has called good and use it in your life for something evil, and anything you put in your life in the place of God becomes an idol. 40% of us statistically here are single. I know a lot of singles. Listen, we like to say Jesus is enough. God is all sufficient. But the reality, we can't say like the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ. No, I gotta get married. What we're really saying is, Jesus, your love is not enough for me. I mean, I need somebody to complete me. No, as a single, you need to know you're an image bearer of God. You are complete already. You're as complete as you will ever be. You don't need to get married. Now, marriage is good. God might send you a mate, but if he doesn't, let me ask you, is Jesus' love sufficient for you? See, if it's not, marriage has become an idol. And I want you to see today that we must subjugate our kingdom to his kingdom. Our kingdom will last temporarily, but his will last eternally, which means we need to start walking in what Jesus said when he said to pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my life. Instead of my will be done, God do my will in my life, thy will in my life. And every single day, we submit our kingdom to his kingdom. God, today, I surrender my rights and my will. I give all rights to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that I might bear your image in all that I encounter, so that I might somehow bring you glory, more grace for more glory. I choose the kingdom of God over my little kingdom today, my kingdom of dust that will one day decay. Yet we build so hard, we work so hard, and we sacrifice for things that won't last and things that in the end don't matter one block after another, after another, after another. We build this little idol to us. We build an idol to me, an image of me. The E stands for excess, ego, experiences, ethnicity. Oh, we live in an age of egos and logos and branding and everybody, you know I'm awesome. If you don't know it yet, you're going to know it eventually. I'm amazing. I can only imagine what God looks down when he sees the arrogance of modern man, the arrogance of modern humanity full of self-idolatry. You have experiences. Listen, my dream, 20-year-old Phil, my dream. So I came from the generation Gen X. We were known for the idolatry of stuff. That was the rise of materialism. So 20-year-old Phil, before there was a pastor Phil, my dream was one day to drive a Jaguar. That was my dream. I finally know I made it, finally. If I got to ever drive a Jaguar, and I really wanted to have a lake house too. That was my dream. It's a dream made of stuff, all right? Now, my children's dream, you know, that generation, the millennial Gen Z, is, is no longer really a dream of stuff. It's all about this, experiences. Like, I wanna travel, I wanna see the world, I wanna have the freedom to go here and to go there and you know, have these experiences. I want you to know, once again, none of this is evil. None of this is wrong. It becomes wrong when it becomes an idol. It becomes a counterfeit God, an image to me. 
I don't want you to know ethnicity. We live at a time where ethnicity has become a thing of idolatry, my nationality, my ancestry, my ethnicity. I mean, I want you to understand regardless of your ancestry, regardless of your ethnicity, we are all children of the living God to bear the image of God. In the end, that is all that matters. And everything else is second. That has to be first if I'm going to pursue the kingdom of God and not merely the kingdom of man. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was all about his kingdom. It was the kingdom of man, kingdom to a man. And that type of man, that kind of woman, lives within us all. One block after another, after another. We work for it, we sacrifice for it, we sweat for it, and in the end, what are we doing? We are building an image to self. It's an idol to self. And some of us here have spent all of our life climbing a ladder, trying to get to the top of this ladder, working so hard for our idols. And one day you're gonna get to the top of that ladder and you're gonna realize then that you climbed the wrong ladder because you live for things that will not matter. There's coming a day that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is going to crush and grind to powder every other kingdom of this world. It was true of Nebuchadnezzar's, and it's true of yours, and it's true of mine. I want you to know sex, stuff, self-satisfaction, self-righteousness. Hey, for some of us, it's self-satisfaction, whatever it takes to make me happy. I mean, that's what self-idolatry is about. If it makes me happy, then why shouldn't I personally, regardless of whether it brings God glory? But for others of us, no, the S stands for self-righteousness. We are so proud of our religion. We are so proud that we're Christians. We are so proud that we're not like all those sinful people. I mean, I'm a child of God. I'm a Christian. I'm holy. I don't cuss. I don't chew, I don't run with girls that do. I'm awesome. No, you're a Pharisee. Full of self-righteousness, you don't really bring God glory. It's all fake, it's all phony. And God knows your heart. See, we all build an idol out of something, and what Daniel 2 tells us is one day our little idols are going to crumble, our little kingdoms are going to rust, decay, and fade away. Daniel 2.34, you watch while a stone was cut without hands. We know who this stone is, Old Testament, New Testament. The stone or the rock is a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's cut without hands, because this is not a stone made with the hands of man. It's a stone that comes only from God, not from the hand of men, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. Everything you have in this world will one day blow away. It will disappear like chaff in the wind. It's gone. That's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. 
Your kingdom king, oh yes, you're the great king Nebuchadnezzar. You built the great hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You have a kingdom that's larger and stronger than any other that ever came before it. It lasted for 70 years. That was it. Gone. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, speaking of an earthly kingdom, and it filled the whole earth. Now, you know what? Jesus picked up on this very language. Matthew chapter 21, look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scripture the stone which the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. Jesus was looking at the unbelieving Pharisees that would not submit the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God. They would not believe Jesus Jesus was indeed the prophesied king. He's saying, this day I have offered you the kingdom of God, but on this day, because of your rebellion and your opposition, the kingdom of God has been taken from you. And I'm gonna give it to another. And I want you to know that today, some of us are in danger of that very thing because we will not submit the kingdom of man. We will not submit the idol to self, to the kingdom of God, the rule of God. Do you understand that you're in danger of the kingdom of God being taken away? And Jesus would put it this way. He said this, for whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. What Jesus was teaching is that if you will fall before him today as the rock of ages, if you will bow before him today as the rock of ages, if you will build your life on the rock and submit your life to the rock, the day is coming that he will give you the kingdom of God. All these things will be added unto you. Matthew chapter 25, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'm gonna make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. If you will exchange your little kingdom now that will last temporarily, God will give you a kingdom later that will last eternally. But if you fail to fall before the rock and bow before the rock, there is a day coming. The rock is gonna fall on you and it's gonna grind you to powder. Let me put it another way. If today you will bow in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, Philippians chapter two, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you'll get off the throne of your life, no longer be the king of your life and make Jesus king over your life. This same Jesus today will become your savior, but if you reject him, the day is coming, he will be your judge. You fall before the rock and fall on the rock or the rock's gonna fall on you. And everything you live for will be ground to dust and it will be carried away like chaff in the wind. See, Daniel 2 teaches us that one day soon the king of heaven is going to return to the earth 
and he will crush all other kingdoms and he will reign forever. Our little idols of self, our little kingdoms of man, the image of self, the idol of self, everything you worked for, everything you longed for, everything you lived for, it's gonna be crushed to powder, it's gonna be destroyed, it's gonna fade away, it's going to decay, but there's only one kingdom that will last forever. It's the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all these things will be added unto you. Nebuchadnezzar hears the interpretation of the dream. He immediately responds. Every time you hear the word of God preached, it demands a response. I would suggest that our response ought to reflect Nebuchadnezzar's response. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate. You don't have to wonder what you're gonna do when you see Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. You don't have to wonder what you're gonna do the first time you see Jesus. Face plant. Prostrate. Nebuchadnezzar, right about now, eats some dust. For the first time in his life, he acknowledges the true and living God. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel, commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Listen, if today you respond to the word of God, there's only one response, that you bow before the rock, before the rock falls on you, because Jesus is truly God of gods. He is Lord of kings. He is the high king of heaven. He is the only one worthy of our worship. He is the only one worthy of sitting on the throne of your life. And one day, if you won't, you're going to lose it all. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Today is the day to make the great exchange. I buried my dad a week ago yesterday. Two weeks ago, today, he was sitting in his seat right there. Today he's seated in heaven. Not long ago, in a conversation we were having, I heard him quote Billy Graham when asked what surprises him most about life. My dad was 82. At 82 years of age, here's what he said, the brevity of life. Don't blink, it goes faster than you think. James 4.14, life is but a vapor. Here for a little while, then vanishing away. It's gone. 
Went to my dad's house this past Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. The time we were normally going to have breakfast as we did every Wednesday morning if I was in town. He'd have the biscuits ready. Sausage was in the pan, I made the gravy. It's what we did. He wasn't there this past week, the house was empty. Went to say my goodbyes. If you knew my dad, he was not, by this world's standards, a rich man but he was very, very wealthy. He wasn't rich, but he was wealthy because he lived his life for eternity. The things that really matter, the things that last forever, the word of God, the souls of men. See, if you're not living for the word of God, the souls of men, you're not living for things that last forever, you will have lived a life that didn't matter. Walked at his home, I found this right here. This was his Bible. This was his discipleship book. This embodied his life. No, the world won't remember him in history. He lived and died in relative obscurity, but his name will be remembered for eternity. You know why? Because he took this Bible and this discipleship book And over the last 20 years, I have no idea how many other men he discipled personally and poured the word of God into the souls of men. I have no idea, only heaven knows. Over and over again, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, he took the Bible and he took this book to make another disciple. See, he traded his little kingdom at 22 years of age for the larger kingdom that of the Lord Jesus Christ. 22 years of age, somebody found him. We call it today, finding your one. Over a thousand of us looking for our one. I'm glad that in 1962, my dad was someone's one. Invited him to church where he heard the gospel and he fell before the rock. Confessing him as Lord and Savior, he built his life upon the rock so that his life And what he lived for will last forever. And church, that is the call on all of our lives today. What are you living for? And in the end, will it matter? And if not, it's a kingdom that will not last forever. Today, if you fail to fall on the rock, I love you enough to tell you that one day the rock is gonna fall on you. That rock cut without hands the rock of ages, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready to see him? Would you bow with me right now? Every head bowed, every eye closed at every other campus, online, right in your living room. Would you consider that question? Because that question will define your destination. Today, are you willing to trade your little kingdom for God's kingdom, the temporal for the eternal? 
If you don't know today your destiny eternally, what you would see if you died today, where you would be, today all of that can change. With a simple prayer of faith. And I wanna pray for you right now. If you're not certain, just lift up your hand very quickly, very quietly. Just hold your hand up high in the air. I wanna pray for you right now. Online, right there, in your living room, wherever you are, God will see your hand. He's the only one that matters, not between you and me, between you and Jesus. Jesus, you see the hands of all men and women, and they reflect the hearts inside of them. And today, God in heaven, I pray that you would reach down the hand of grace By holding their hand in the air, they're asking for the hand of grace instead of the hand of judgment. And I pray that today would be the day they make the great exchange. No longer king over this little kingdom. Members of a much larger kingdom, an eternal kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you're in this Lee Summit Auditorium and you're not certain today of your destination, whether it be heaven, there's a response team, a prayer team going to be on this platform. I'm going to ask you to come right now if you're on the response team, the prayer team. Before you leave this building, I'm going to ask you to quickly come this way as I pray. If you're online today, you can click on a link and somebody will personally follow up with you about how you can make certain your destination as a member of God's kingdom. You don't have to live in doubt. Jesus, I pray for every single person under the sound of my voice that today would be the day where we submit our kingdom for the one that's far better that will last forever. For you are truly Jesus, God of all gods and Lord of all kings. And there is none other. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you give Jesus the glory with me today? Praising, would you, church? Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.